All right, well, welcome to Class 3 of the Paulist Institute on the Role and Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And tonight we'll be talking about the spiritual gifts. Last week, Al covered spiritual gifts in general, what they are. And we're going to talk tonight really about what are some of these gifts as defined or at least listed in Scripture. So that is our agenda. And with that, let us pray and get started here. Well, Lord, thank you for this context tonight to discuss your gifts that you have given to your children for the purpose of edifying and building a good church. So Lord, I pray everyone here tonight would be edified, would be encouraged, Lord, would be built up as we discuss these gifts. And that they be in faith imparted tonight to grow in the gifts you've given us for the purpose of building up your church and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we just were talking about before the recording here, a little introduction. So this might be summary from last week, but really setting the context for discussion tonight. And that is the definition of a spiritual gift. Any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. Number two, all Christians have spiritual gifts in Scripture. Each and every Christian has a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. So everyone here, the believer, has a gift given by God. Number three, the, the gifts listed in Scripture. And there's four main texts where you'll find those gifts listed. Well, you say five. I haven't listed there for you in the notes. They're not exhaustive. Nor are many of the gifts strictly defined in Scripture. We're going to do our best to define some of those gifts tonight. But what I want to say is they're not limited to what we see here. But if you want a sampling of those gifts, the easy way to remember, there's four main texts. Two chapter 12, two chapter 4. That's how I remember it, okay? 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And the two chapter 4s are Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. That's how I remember it. Two 12s and two 4s give you a sampling of the gifts, which I believe Al had in his notes last week. We're going to go through some of those tonight. We're going to go through actually 16 of those tonight. Once again, this isn't exhaustive. There are certainly more gifts, maybe innumerable gifts that God gives. But these are some that are highlighted in Scripture. So I want to be careful, though, tonight as well, that do not load too much into the terms that was intended. The reality is that the Spirit, and this is the key, the Spirit of God can empower a number of activities in a number of ways. So it's certainly not limited to what we see in Scripture. It's the Spirit which dwells in every believer who empowers the very gifts that make them spiritual gifts. Number four, it's not critical that we're able to name all our gifts. It's not critical that we name all our gifts. I know that it's very popular today to take spiritual inventory courses to determine your gifts. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I think we can almost at times be obsessed by what's my gift or what's my gift. I think there's a better question to ask. And that is, how can I actively pursue serving others in carrying out the roles God has given me in the church? as well as in the home. As you carry out those roles, as you pursue serving others, 
I think those gifts will become increasingly known. Not only to you as you serve, but you know what? They'll become increasingly known to others as well. So, it's not critical that you have to name all of them. Rather, a quote here from John Piper that I find helpful says this, You shouldn't bend your mind too much trying to label your spiritual gift before you use it. We must not get hung up on naming our gifts. The things to get hung up on is this, are we doing what we can do to strengthen the faith of the people around us? Are we doing what we know to do to strengthen, to edify, to build up those around us? And your guests will become known. Then fifthly, as we serve, ask. Ask for the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Ask for the gifts. Let's turn to Luke 11. I love this text. We're going to look at Luke 11, starting with verse 5 through 13 to encourage us in this area of asking. All right. I'll read it for the recording here. Verses 5 through 13 of Luke 11. This comes right after the well-known Lord's Prayer. All right? And we read. This is Christ speaking. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We know on this side, on the other side of the cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, that if we're a believer, we have the Holy Spirit. But I believe the encouragement is to know and desire and to ask for the fun of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, for his gifts as well. But notice the motive we could often miss in this text. Let's go back to the man who's asking. Why is he asking for three loaves of bread? For what's the purpose? Why does he want three loaves of bread? In the text here. Okay. Low on supplies. Low on supplies. Public isn't open. Public is not open, and he needs some bread, right? But it's not just for himself. He needs it. Why? For someone else. For someone else. On the heels of that, Christ says, ask. Ask. And I will give. This is an encouragement, I believe, that we are to be asking for the fullness, the filling, and the gifts of the very Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can give to others. For the common good, says in 1 Corinthians. That others can be built up. 
to the principle as we ask, and God our Father is delighted to give. He'll not give us an A, he'll not give us a scorpion. He'll give that which we ask for the common good. Alright? So we have an encouragement built into Scripture right here. love this quote from uh, J. Robin Williams. It says this, Such a precious gift as the Holy Spirit will not be given indiscriminately to seekers and non-seekers alone, but to those who earnestly desire it. God is not a reluctant or grudging giver who must be badgered into giving his favors. Hence, the persistence in prayer that is called for is not to overcome his unwillingness, but rather to demonstrate the wholeheartedness of those asking, and thus to prepare the way for the extraordinary gift to be received. I think the point's clear. We're not praying because God's some begrudging God. No, he's eager and desirous to give, but he wants us to ask, all right, that we may know receive this filling in the gifts that he offers. I find that encouraging. I also find that often don't ask either. <laughs> Verse 6. The Bible, excuse me, point 6. The Bible makes no distinction between natural and supernatural gifts. In other words, all the gifts are supernatural. Why? Because they're empowered by the Spirit. They're spiritual gifts. And just simply natural gifts but they're spiritually empowered gifts. Quote here from Ritterboss, The charismatic is not only that which is spectacular and unusual, charisma, grace gifts, is everything the Spirit wishes to use and presses into service for equipping and building the church that can serve for instruction and admonition and for ministering to one another. So with that in mind, that preface, that introduction, let's talk about some of these gifts. What I want to do tonight is start with what is sometimes called the spectacular gifts. Not more important, but perhaps the most controversial, okay? Or perhaps the least understood gifts. So I'm starting with those first. And by doing this, I don't want to communicate that the gifts that are non-spectacular are any less important. But I want to cover these because we often have a lot of misunderstanding regarding these spiritual gifts. And the first, I thought it would be appropriate to start with prophecy. We're reading in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Paul says this. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially, especially, that you may prophesy. So pursue love. That's our motive. Yes, desire the gifts but especially prophecy. Why prophecy? We're going to talk about, talk about that. But first, a definition for you. In your notes there from Grudem, a report of a revelation in human words for the edification of the church or an individual subject to evaluation. It's a report of a revelation received from God and then put and reported in human words. Okay? A few clarifying points. Prophecy, A in your notes, is not scripture. It is just not to be equated with the Old Testament prophets. You might hear that argument saying, how could prophecy exist today? We're saying no, it is not the same as the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets spoke, 
much what they spoke became the canon. Okay? It's the very word of God. Okay? Which those who heard were an obligation to obey. The apostles in the New Testament are the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. Okay? The apostles who wrote scripture in the New Testament, their words, as recorded in the New Testament, are to be obeyed. It's a scripture. So the apostles fulfill the role of the Old Testament prophets, not the New Testament prophets that we see. To quote Grudem again, a word for prophet in the New Testament did not have the sense of one who speaks God's very words, but rather one who speaks on the basis of some external influence. Much more commonly, the words prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something that God had laid in their hearts or brought to their minds. So B, what is prophecy? It's not scripture. It's a revelation. A revelation from God reported in human words, i.e. reported in sometimes very fallible words as well. A revelation, an impression from God, nonetheless from God, but interpreted and then reported in our words. All right? 1 Corinthians 14.30 says this, If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. In this chapter, he's speaking of the prophetic gift. He calls it a revelation. So if a revelation is received, let the first be silent. It is a spontaneous revelation, impression from God. Another quote here from Grubham. Paul is simply referring to something that God may suddenly bring to mind or something that God may impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it's from God. I kind of find that helpful, personally. That, that, that quote, and how we see it, prophecy exercise in the New Testament, that helps me. It also demystifies prophecy a little bit as well. It's not scripture. It's not authoritative, like scripture. It's an impression. It's a revelation from God. That God puts in our hearts, in our minds, the senses from Him, and it's for someone else that we then communicate in human words. What's the purpose? 1 Corinthians 14, 3 says, I'm not looking up all these scriptures. I know we could pause. We have a lot of scriptures here. I did list the references in parentheses in your notes there, and I'm simply reading those verses for you. We'll stop at a few places along the way. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their, number one, a building, number two, an encouragement, and number three, consolation. So here we see, really, Paul's describing the purpose of why we should prophesy. What is the purpose? That we'd be built up, that we'd be encouraged, and consoled. Amen. Who doesn't need that, right? That's body life, isn't it? And this encouragement is based on the result of Christ's finished work on the cross. This is the cool thing. Before Christ came, the Old Testament prophets, they saw anticipatory visions of what was to come. Not complete, 
but visions of what was to come or who was to come, i.e., their Savior. And they reported those. We have that in Scripture. Prophecies. Old Testament prophecies. Now that Christ has come, we see retrospective visions of the Savior and His work, reminding the hearers of what He has done. So prophecy is, at its core, what's central to it is the cross. It's looking back at what Christ has done. It's bringing and delivering that truth home to someone, to encourage, to build up, and to console. Old Testament prophets look forward to Christ's coming, and once it's prophecy functions today, to look back on what Christ has done to encourage us, all right, to console us as well. Well, prophecy, oftentimes we think of prophecy, we often think of, don't we, the foretelling. What's to come? You know, give me. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Tell me what's going to happen in the end times. But really what we see in Scripture is more what we call foretelling rather than foretelling. It's not so much what is to come, but it's telling what is, okay, based on what Christ has done on the cross. It's more foretelling than foretelling. Why have you noticed that? Then what about predictive, predictive prophecies? Do they exist? Well, Grudem once again helps us here. He says, It is interesting to note that the common conception of a prophet as one who predicts the future plays no part in Paul's definition. 1 Corinthians 3, 14.3. It plays no part in Paul's definition at this point. It is not that prediction was excluded from prophecy, but rather that prediction was not an end in itself. It was only as valuable as it served the purposes outlined in 1 Corinthians 14.3. So the end of prophecy is not some future event, prediction. The purpose is to console, to edify, and to encourage all right? And that's the heart of prophecy. Well, what about directive prophecies? What about directive prophecies? This is an important note. At times, you may have even received a prophetic word that might be directive, i.e. telling you perhaps what you should do. We do not look to prophecies for guidance. Where do we look for guidance in our lives? In Scripture, right? That doesn't mean there's no value in a directive prophecy. What a directive prophecy ought to do is confirm, if it's of God, a direction. But it's not that which we live by. If we do so, it's a very dangerous situation. I've received many prophecies. <laughs> some directive, and some that I'm very glad I did not follow as well. But I have received others that were a confirmation of what God was already doing in my heart by a person who never knew. And God used it as a means of grace to confirm what he was about to do with me. Even before I became a pastor, as a part of sovereign grace, there were some prophetic words that very much would direct me towards that path. But I wasn't taking, I wasn't following that path because I received the prophecies. Okay? I was trying to discern scripture and talk to those who knew me. 
But as this word came along, it confirmed what God was doing in my heart. And it was an encouragement. But it didn't guide me in my decision making. Does that make sense? We need to parse that very carefully. Alright? Because, even though you may have an impression from the Lord, prophecies are still fallible. They're human report, human words, and we can get it wrong. So I would never have someone to act solely on the basis of a prophecy. Even though, at times, it may be directive. I mean, that confirm what God is already doing and provide comfort or confirmation. Well, how is prophecy used? A couple more points here to notice here. Prophecy is for the gathered church. We see in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. I'll read it. It says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, i.e. a prophecy, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done. Here we go again. For building up. So as you gather, these gifts should be in operation including prophecy as well. That's why in our Sunday service, we're trying to create a room or space for that. And if not on Sunday, on Wednesday in a smaller group atmosphere where there's an opportunity for prayer, for ministry, even for a prophetic word. Not a prophetic word like we're getting up and there's a big microphone in the middle of the circle of home group. Thus says the Lord. No, it's just you have an impression. God wants to minister to someone. And God gave you a picture or a verse of lit on your hearts, and you're faithfully reporting this spontaneous thought or revelation in human words for the purpose of upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So we desire to see these gifts working, particularly prophecy, because it's so useful for building up in the context of the gathered church. But sometimes prophecies aren't for the gathered church. Sometimes on Sunday morning, someone may come up and say, I think I have a prophetic word. But as I am praying and seeking to discern, I don't sense it's for the congregation as a whole. But it may be for a very specific, specific individual or person. And at times I may say, you know what? I don't think that's for the church right now. But it may be for this person. Or I may say, I don't really know who it's from. But for, I think it may be for a person. And I ask, do you think you know? And oftentimes I may say, you know what? I think I do. But why do you go to them afterwards, personally? This may be a personal prophetic word or encouragement. We see that exact thing in Scripture. Let me read Acts 21, verse 11. It says, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Lord. This is Agabus, okay, talking. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus has a word for Paul, who's about to go to Jerusalem, and he's telling him what is about to happen. It is not a word for the whole church, it's a word for Paul. <coughs> the interesting thing in this prophecy, well, he didn't get it quite right. He got most of it right. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested, but he wouldn't be delivered over. It says here, by the Jews. So he's close. Indeed, it does happen. But not quite as Agabus had said. It wasn't the Jews that bound him. Put it that way. It was the Romans. Okay, the Gentiles. Anyway, going on. 1 Timothy 1.18. It 
Paul speaking, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So apparently, Timothy had received a personal prophecy. Prophecies. And now Paul is encouraging him, reminding them, him, Timothy, the younger mentor and pastor, of the prophecies he had received individually as well. So prophecies can be for the church as a whole. They can be for individuals. This is really cool. The next thing, they can also be for unbelievers as well. And I long to see prophecy function this way as well. We read in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophecy, but if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So not only may God use prophetic words to encourage us, his children, his believers, he may use it as well to get the attention of a non-believer as he realizes and senses that God is here. He is speaking to me. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls upon him and he cries out. May it be as well. Prophecy functions in evangelism to reveal secrets of an unbeliever's heart and thereby to amaze him with the power of God at work. It hasn't happened often, but there has been, have been times speaking with strangers where I am praying and God has given me particular names of individuals who I don't know that I will meet and I go up to, even little tidbits as well. And God has used that to open up a door to speak. There's no way I knew that person's name prior to speaking to them. I believe God wants to use prophetic evangelistically as well. As well. And we see reason for that right here in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. Well, with all that said, I'm taking more time here than I think on any other gift. I think this is often the most misunderstood gift. And it's a gift that we're to eagerly desire and pursue. So I'm taking additional time. But all that said, prophecy needs to be evaluated, right? It has to be evaluated. Because we are fallible human beings, Right? and we don't always get it right. That's true for every gift, by the way. People say, well, it's not prophecy, it's not right. Well, no gift that we exercise are we completely pure and sinless and perfect in exercising that gift, okay? That includes teaching as well. So, that's true for prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. Let them weigh what is said, Okay? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the spirits, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Test everything. What do you testify? How do we, how do we test a prophecy? By scripture. By scripture, right? Obviously, the context of scripture, it's not from God, okay? But there are times where scripture may not address the situation directly. It may not be in contradiction too, but the first thing we do is compare the scripture as well. Is it consistent with scripture as well? 
great. Well, that is prophecy. Any questions there before we move on? I want some more questions at the end, but I was unclear there. That's a lot to cover, I realize. So when people are coming up during the church service, the prophecy, you're making an assessment of whether it's for the congregation or whether it's for a specific person, right? Right, yeah. Sean asked when someone comes up on a Sunday morning, either LRI or trying to determine is it for the congregation or for an individual. Yes, we are. And, first of all, is it from the Lord? Is it consistent? Is it scripturally based? Is it not contradictory to scripture? Is it for the congregation? Is it for an individual? Also, thirdly, is it for now? It may be both those two, but don't sense it's for now. It's not, it's not where things are going thematically in the service. Don't sense that's the direction God wants to take it at this time. Maybe at the end of the service, Maybe even next Sunday, perhaps. But, so we're looking for timing as well. We're trying to discern all those things. So there's, there's an art here, isn't there? To those who interpret the revelation and give word to it, speech to it, as well as those on the other end, like Al and I, who are also fallible, trying to determine, is this prophecy for the congregation of the church? Is it for now, at this time? Right. So, so how would you advise someone who comes up in front of the congregation and for some reason their prophecy is not heard by them? Like, is that... Are there issues that surface around that, especially for a new person that's coming up for the first time? First of all, yeah, it's, it's very intimidating to come up. Yes. Very. I respect anyone who comes up. It takes a lot of courage to come up in the middle of a worship song when people see you walk down the aisle, so to speak, and then turn around and go back, right? <laughs> so I want to encourage them. I think if it's a good word, I don't want them to feel shame at all. I don't want them to feel shame. I don't want them to be embarrassed. I want to encourage and commend them that they came up. And honestly, they came up, I'm believing their desire is to bless the church. Their motive is to bless. Knowing our folks, they don't think it's a show-off. I mean, that could be a motive, I suppose. But I think our folks, they, they simply, they're being obedient to what they sense. Most of them probably don't want to come up. I'm going to stay in my seat. It's much more comfortable. Or stand on the aisle. But to come up, they're doing it. They want to be a blessing to build up the church. I just want to commend them. You know, not for now. Say, just because it's not for now doesn't mean it may not be from God. But I don't think it's for right now. But don't be discouraged. Perhaps it's for someone else for a later time. Thank you. Good question. Well, the next, tongues and interpretation. Doesn't get any easier, okay? Let's just tackle tongues, okay? Let me say, in one sense, tongues is weird, okay? It's, you've heard the analogy. Tongues is like, it's the crazy uncle, you know? When all the family comes over, you kind of want to hide in the bedroom, you know? You don't want to let them out, you know? Why? Because it may be a little embarrassing. Well, I do want to address that. I, don't, I believe tongues is a gift from God. We should not be embarrassed by it. But it is strange, okay? To our common sense in many ways. But if tongues are also, I think we see, a beautiful thing as well. Because it's from God and His Spirit. The word translated tongues really can be translated languages, okay? Um, in our English, we used to say tongues. In first Corinthians, tongues, but like easily it could be in the Greek translated languages. God gives a gift of languages. But He gives, what the thought with tongues is tongues plus interpretation properly functioning in the church gives an indication, it's a sign that one day differences in languages that originated 
at the Tower of Babel will one day be overcome. One day, the confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel will be overcome. When there is a tongue that you don't understand, but an interpretation is provided, we are getting a foretaste of what is to come. It is an eschatological sign of the end times of what is to come. When God, we gather around the throne, when we as one, says in Revelation 7-9, declare with one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. We get a picture of that one day. And I believe tongues is a foretaste of that. All different nations, ethnic groups, ethnic will be gathered on the throne in one voice. John heard in one voice. He heard, he understood what they were saying. All different people, multitudes, angels, elders, creation, the redeemed, praising God. And he knew what they were saying. With one voice, praising the Lamb who was slain. We didn't want to taste that with the gift of tongues. We read in Acts 2.4 at Pentecost. You'd be familiar with that text. It says this, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So how might we define the gift of tongues or languages as used in Scripture? Well, here's the definition for you. Speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood okay, by the speaker. Prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Catch this, number 1A in your notes. The words of prayer or praise spoken who? To God. Tongues is a language spoken to God. Okay? To differentiate from prophecy, right? Which is reporting a word from God to man. Tongues is from man to God. They're not in the form of praise. Alright, we see that in 1 Corinthians 14 too. For no one speaks in a tongue. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirits. B. It's not understood by the speaker. Just read that in that verse 14.2. C. It's not ecstatic, but it's self-control. You read in 1 Corinthians 14.27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three most, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three most? There's no one to interpret? Keep silent. In other words, you can control it, okay? You can control this gift of tongues. It's not some spirit possessing you and you're in some kind of trance and you're out of your right mind. You can't control yourself? Yes, you can. You say, no interpretation? Sit down, be quiet. Okay? There's an order here as well. It is subject to the person. Alright? It is a gift to be exercised, but it can be controlled. Alright? D. 
Tongues must be interpreted in a church service. It must be interpreted in a church service. All right, why? Why must it be interpreted? If the gifts are to edify the church, right? Tongues is one of those gifts, publicly spoken, that have the church. How people look right edified if they don't understand. So, if you do have a tongue, we want to make sure first that we know or we sense there is an interpretation as well. Why the church may be built up as well. Since so 1 Corinthians 14 4. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So there is a function, tongue spoken privately, that builds you up. It's personally edifying. Now granted, there is a mystery here. Because you are praying that which you do not know. But we read from Scripture that it is possible, and indeed one of the functions of, of tongues, privately pray, builds you up. So you pray in words and symbols you do not know. But Paul says, I engage my mind, okay? I get my mind, so I am praying and thinking. And I'm praying and I'm pouring out my heart to God in a language that's not of my own. Learning. And it builds you up. But if he's spoken publicly, it needs to be interpreted lest no one is built up of yourself. My other people are probably confused, okay? We read in 1 Corinthians 14, 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Lastly, even though this is a gift that is for we believe today, all these gifts we believe are for today, as I believe Al may have covered last week, they're for today. Even though Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, it doesn't mean that all Christians do speak in tongues. Alright? There are some circles, some churches that would say that. Some churches might say, I've encountered this before, to be a Christian, a true Christian, you must speak in tongues. Tongues is an earmark or validation of your salvation. But for many churches, I don't necessarily say that, but there are some in the Pentecostal realm would say that it really is almost, it's one as a badge. You really arrive, you are spiritual. That's what was happening in the church in Corinth as well. In fact, they were kings. They had arrived. They spoke in tongues. And it was a sort of pride. I speak in tongues. Have you got it? I got it. As if you were the favorite one. No, we can't relegate tongues to some favorite status. Not all speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 30 says this. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, not all. Not all. Should we pursue the gifts? Asking for gifts? Even tongues? Yes, absolutely. It doesn't mean everyone receives the gift. All right? Tongues interpretation. Questions? Yes. Is there any... In the original writings, when it talks about tongue, is there more than one word used for that, for that explanation in the original writings? You know, like love has multiple yeah, words to no. mean love. 
Don't believe so, no. Okay. No. Yeah, Glossia, it's language. Yeah, that I'm aware of. Yeah. How would you know if there's an interpretation um, to a tongue that would be allowed to be sent in church? Would, would a tongue be um, said at one point and an interpretation at another point? And then you would say, you know what, let's take it to the church. Or how would, yeah, great how question. Would about? Question was, how do you know if there's someone has a tongue if there is an interpretation for that tongue in a public setting? Do you get along those lines, Jose? Well, that happened to me. Okay. That actually with Mary. Twice. Uh-huh. Once in the Palm Vista. I don't know if you were at the church yet. I remember a couple times in the past, yeah. Okay. But okay. what happened, Sean, what happened was Mary, or she had a word, but it was with a tongue. So she went up out and shared that she thought she had something to share with the words in the tongue. I'm sitting in my, bed, in my, in my chair, I think of, that's put something on my heart to share, but I don't even know what it is. It was, a weird, it was a, like a weird feeling, like I don't know what it is I'm supposed to share. Yeah. <laughs> so I just got up and went to Al and said, Al, I just have this weird sense that I'm to share something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, so he, he said, hmm, you know, like he, he, right. he, he, he said, okay, he had Mary off to the side praying. He said, why don't you stand off to the side and pray, and then I'll get back with you two. That's all he did. And then a few, a few minutes later, he just told Mallory to go ahead and share, and he told me this, if I say, if I, if I, I don't know, if we asked him, do you think he could get an interpretation on it? I don't know. He just says, and he said, well, you know, went ahead and said, go ahead, Mallory, you share, and then I went up. And as she was sharing, I knew exactly what she was saying. It was the weirdest thing. And then I just, just after that she finished, I'm, I'm, I'll never forget it. It was Psalm 73, verse 25. Uh-huh. <laughs> never, because it was the weirdest yeah. thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's and that, was, that was exactly what it was. That's great. Let me summarize from the recording here. Okay. I, I know they can't hear you probably, but yeah, Jose was just sharing that. He's experienced where someone else may have a tongue, and then God working in him, that stirring him up, that he may have an interpretation. Now, one time, indeed, that was the case. So one person had a tongue, Another person had an interpretation. There have been times where I'm talking to folks and someone's come up to me and says, yeah, like you did, Jose, I, I think I have an interpretation. But first, we must have a tongue. <laughs> so a person unknowingly comes up a little later, I think I have a tongue. Okay, I'm not too bright, but I can put the two to two together. We have an interpretation, we have a tongue. Maybe God's doing something here, okay? All right? Together. I do have a question, though. Yes, question. I don't, it's happened to me twice. Huh? And the same both times go with Maui. You're an official interpreter. Interesting. One's in Cuba uh-huh. and one's here. What? I mean, just God? <laughs> I don't, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird question, but. Why a particular person? Yeah. Why got to work that way? There certainly is a mystery to this gift. Yeah, I think, but we shouldn't be afraid of it either. If it's given by God, for his people, for the edification of his church, it is good. Now we have to exercise wisdom and prudence with this gift, as we do with all the gifts, particularly because this can be misunderstood. So I think there is a teaching component, Al and I, to teach what is happening, to explain what is happening as well. But it's of God, and I believe it is a sign, an anticipatory sign of what is yet to come one day. Well, thirdly, gifts of healing. 
That's, it's plural. Gifts of healing. A little different than the rest of the list we see in 1 Corinthians 12. Plural. Gifts of healing. Oh, may God give gifts of healing. We read in Isaiah 53.5 that he was wounded for our transgressions. This is 700 years prior to Christ. The prophet Isaiah speaking of the suffering servant who we know is Jesus Christ. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. What's that? was Isaiah 53, verse 5. So, what was the prophet Isaiah, more importantly God, referring to here? By his stripes we were healed. Is this a... It's obviously speaking of Christ. You read this whole text, verses 3 through 7 of Isaiah 53. It's very clear. This is speaking about, I believe, Christ and his suffering upon the cross. He was crushed for iniquities. But it's by, your, by his stripes we were healed. Is, is that a physical healing? Or merely a simple, not merely, but only a spiritual healing? I believe it's both. Let's open up our text to the Bible, so 1 Corinthians 2. Mistaking your notes, first, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Not verses 4 and 5 there. Verses, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. I'm going to go ahead and read it once again, the recording here. Um, Speaking of Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And I believe in this context here in 1 Peter, He's speaking about a spiritual salvation. Okay? For the verse, that first part of verse 24, He bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we may die to sin, live to righteousness. Okay? I believe this is a spiritual healing, okay? But I don't believe it's just that. Because we read the words in Matthew 8. Turn to Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17. Fascinating scripture here. The Lord and Savior Jesus. From his own mouth. Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. The physical healing. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet ah, Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Christ is quoting the Bible of his day, which is the Old Testament, he is quoting Isaiah 53. He is healing the sick physically. And he's referring back to the prophecy that by his stripes you will be healed. They refer to him and what he was about to do on the cross. Catch that? So yes, we are healed spiritually. But by his stripes... 
His crucifixion on the cross also brings a physical healing as well. Now, one sense that physical healing won't be fully received until the day when you have heaven in our bodies. We receive what we call theologically, we're glorified or glorification. Okay. So, one sense that's absolutely true. But at times, God does heal physically today as a sign of what is yet to come in the days when God will make all things new and we will receive perfect, glorified bodies without illness, without disease. Jose, that's true for you too, buddy. True for you. There is a day. It's a drag. Lord, may it be. So what is the purpose of the gifts of healing? To authenticate the gospel. To demonstrate God's mercy. And to bring glory to God. But that does beg the question, well, how should we pray? Because God doesn't always heal, right? We know the day is coming. We'll all be healed. Those who are in Christ. But we don't know if it's God's will that He would heal me here on earth. Maybe He will, maybe He won't. Don't let that paralyze you, okay? Oh, I think we should pray. Love this quote from Wayne Grunner. Let me read it for you. So when we pray, it seems right that our first assumption, unless we have specific reason to think otherwise, should be that God would be pleased to heal the person we are praying for. As far as we tell, from Scripture. This is God's revealed will. Maybe you said, well, I don't know how to pray because I'm not sure He wants to heal. Well, every time you take medication, you're assuming it's God's will that you be healed. You're not praying. Does God want me to be healed? Should I take this medicine or should I not? I'm not sure God wants me to be healed. Now you take it. <laughs> Why? That medication may be a very means of grace for healing. Right? So why not pray as well? God can use medication. He may want to heal you by divine touch right there as well. I don't know. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask. Yes, I'm going to take medication. <laughs> I don't really need to pray about it beforehand, judging me, okay? If it's will or not to be healed, I'm assuming yes, so I'm taking it. In the same way, I'm going to pray as well, not knowing. But knowing that God can heal in a time he chooses to heal. So I'm going to ask it may be glorified in my asking. Because I believe he can heal. And he's being glorified even in my asking. I'll determine whether he heals or not. Alright? Maybe he will give a gift of healing. At the end, we're going to pray for little Alexander Julio Meyer. Uh, Tim called up a little earlier. And, um, he was born today, about 4 p.m., to Adam Nemoy. But I had a little water, I believe, in the lungs, I understand. I don't know how serious it is, but I want to pray at the end here for little Alexander as well. May God grant him his first day of life. I guess if you like that. That'd be cool. All right. So what should we do? We should pray, we should ask. James 4 2 says, we don't have, we don't ask. When we ask, we ask with the wrong motives. So let's ask. With the, the desire to glorify God, that we may see a gift of healing take place, that He may be glorified. 
May His gospel be confirmed that by His stripes we are healed spiritually and one day physically. We're saying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let me give you a taste of your kingdom to come. Let me taste it now, Lord. May I? It's a way of encouragement in my faith and to give you glory. I believe God wants to answer that. He is the sovereign Lord. But may we ask. We read in James 5. We're going to get to that in our series a little later. James 5, 14. A great verse. He says this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. And let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil. In the name of the Lord. He said, call the elders. Let's pray. They may be healed. At times, we'll do that on a Sunday. I've done it for a while. Probably need to do it again. Invite folks up. God is not dependent upon oil. Oftentimes you see laying on of hands and oil, specifically in Scripture, as a symbolizing an anointing upon a person. So we will do that. Pray for folks in accordance with Scripture. We're praying for gifts of healing. I don't think when we say a person has a gift of healing, meaning it's they have a gift, who they pray for, because I'd like to heal. No one has a perfect healing record, okay? I would interpret this as gifts of healing. He gives certain people gifts. He heals them at times. He'll give you a gift. He'll heal you. He'll give gifts of healing to you and to you as he chooses. It's not a gift that someone has and it's just like it just activates and then when they pray, someone's healed. God does use certain individuals that way, in a more pronounced way, and when they do pray, often God does choose to give gifts of healing. But no one has some automatic gift of healing. We all must ask and pray. And may God grant us gifts of healing. Yes, even at Paul and Vista. May we understand that we live in the already and not yet. Christ has come, but he hasn't returned. Okay? Kingdom's come, but it hasn't been consummated. So God does do gifts of healing, but it won't be fully and complete. Fully and complete until the day of its return. Any questions there? All right. Well, those were the big three. We're going to move on a little quicker clip for the rest of these here. Those are some of the big ones here. Number four, distinguishing of spirits. Not a lot is said, so I mentioned once in the entire New Testament. Definition for you. A special ability to recognize the influence of the Holy Spirit or the demonic spirits in a person. Once again, I think this gift is a foretaste of what's to come as well. That day when Christ returns, He'll bring all things that are hidden to light. This is in Matthew 10, 26. God does it even now by enabling at times individuals to discern a spiritual influence, whether it be the Holy Spirit or demonic. I've seen it operating in evangelism as well at times. Yes, Sean? I have a question. Yeah. Because when I'm reading in the New Testament a lot, as well as in the Old Testament, it appears Israel at that time, there's a lot of evil spirits. They talk constantly about evil spirits, evil spirits, evil spirits. And uh, was there something happening in that time in history where the evil spirits were manifested? Because like in today's world, I don't see that a lot. Was there, and I always wondered about, and then specifically about distinguishing between spirits. But I've never seen anything like that currently in modern day times. Right. So was there something happening around Israel's time that, that 
But the, the Lord, while well, he was walking on this earth, evil spirits came to him so he could show his glory? Or was I was wondering about that. Great question. Not sure. It's a great question, Sean. Uh, we seem to see much more of a presence of prominence as a spiritual demonic influence in the biblical times. Certainly, Christ, God in the flesh, is walking the earth. And talk about real spiritual opposition. I don't think I create that kind of opposition among the spiritual forces. You know what I'm saying? I don't think I'm that important. Obviously, Christ was coming. In this time of history, all of history, of creation rested upon Christ's redemptive work. So it was a pivotal time, literally, in all of history. And certainly we see a confluence of forces and demonic acting. Also, people I think are much more in tune, aware, in their worldview. I think today, we think we're above that. It doesn't exist. Can Satan use different ways in which to influence us? I think so. And I think we have other ways more susceptible to today. But certainly, demonic spirits are still, I believe, alive and active today. And you're right. We do see quite a bit written about it during the biblical times. Certainly, we live in different times. I Christ not walking the earth. <laughs> and what he's done has been already accomplished. Satan has been defeated at the cross. So we do not face that type of opposition that's still there to who Christ is and what he's done. Certainly manifests in different ways, I believe. Yeah. Yes. move on here and yeah and uh, definitely so much more we can say about these topics these are worthy of even more discussion I do want to hit the remaining here number five miracles literally workings of power definition a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself I wish I had time I'm not going to read it but Acts 429 is a wonderful passage the disciples crying out for God to do signs and wonders and glorify His name, even as they're being oppressed and even in prison. They're crying out to God to make His name known through miracles. I love the perspective captured there by the early disciples in Acts 4. Um, number six, faith. That's also listed as a gift. You say faith. Well, shouldn't we all have faith? Well, certainly. We must have faith to come to the Lord. But I think there is a distinguishing mark here. There is a conversion faith. There is what they call a continuing faith that you have living out the Christian life. But here I believe we're talking about a charismatic faith, a gift of faith. 
Possible examples of the gift of faith. Mark 11, 22, 24. Okay, we've got to read that one. We've got to read that one. Just one. This type of charismatic or gift of faith. Mark 11, verse 22, 24. I'll read it. As they passed in the morning, and Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Wow, what do you do with that verse, huh? <laughs> ask that mountain... You thrown in the sea, and it will be done. I'm here because of that. What's that? I'm here because of that. Uh, I'm on guest tour back in 2003, and uh, the doctor even told my wife, we just got to make some arrangements. Yes. And on the way home, she started calling all of our friends at church, and everybody started praying for me. And, wow. and the doctor even the next morning said, he couldn't explain it. Excellent. Yeah, how I, I, I turned the corner so quickly. It's, uh, it's a miracle down here. Yeah. And I know it's because he answered prayer. That's great. How's that? Actually, he answered to God. That is God's active work in your life. That's his mercy. Yes. So there is a faith. Look at the definition the God given ability to trust God for a certain blessing. Not promised in Scripture. Look at down below. Is there notes here from Sam Storms? A quote? I'll read it. The gift of faith is that mysterious surge of confidence that arises within a person in a particular situation of need or challenge and which gives an extraordinary certainty and assurance that God is about to act through a word or an action. Why? It's not promised in Scripture. We're not claiming it as it is Scripture. We're not making our lives in it, but it's a faith God's given. Maybe it's a faith God's going to provide a building. i got a faith that God's going to provide a building next year for us. Maybe it's a relationship that God has for you. And there's a faith. It's a, you can't explain it. And you need to be careful here in a sense. It's not Scripture. It doesn't contradict Scripture. But it's something God has imparted to you, a faith to believe for that action of that word or that outcome. It's a supernatural God does give. A word of wisdom. You know what? There's a lot here. I am not going to go through all of this. I have some notes for you. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Let me just say, these two phrases are used in all of Greek literature. Not all of the Bible, but all of Greek literature. There's a lot of Greek literature out there. Okay? Antiquity. It's only used once. Right here in 1 Corinthians. All right? So what does that mean? We have very little context <laughs> to understand this phrase. But I believe something that the word of wisdom is this. And I've laid it out. I don't have time to lay it out for you why I believe this. But I believe if you study the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll understand how wisdom is spoken of. A word of wisdom is spoken of by Paul as a word of wisdom that comes from the cross. It's opposed and contrasted with the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the cross is what? 
foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. Paul is contrasting their wisdom with the wisdom of the cross. So I believe when Paul is speaking here about a word of wisdom, you see a definition there for you. He's saying this. It's a spirit-inspired insight into some aspect of God's redemptive purposes, which is then spoken and results in the edification of others and perhaps the illumination of others with the saving power of the gospel. Fancy definition there. But a word of wisdom is a word that brings illumination regarding God's redemptive work what he accomplished at the cross. And it's brought to bear at that moment in a person's life, who you are speaking with, counseling, or perhaps even sharing with an evangelism. Okay? It's not just teaching. We must all learn and understand and make gospel connections. But if God brings insight to mind of how the cross and what he's accomplished relates to that person at that time, and God uses that word spoken to bring light and illumination when they see and understand the gospel. Does that make sense? That's formed from the context of 1 Corinthians. A lot more I could say there, want to say, can't say, won't say, moving on, word of knowledge, okay? Only use once. In many Pentecostal, charismatic settings, a word of knowledge, it's some foreknowledge, something that you know that there's no way you would have known about that person. God revealed something about that person. They gave you a word of knowledge. Something I got a word of knowledge about Sean Worley. That I could have known, and then God gave it to me. May I propose? That's not a word of knowledge. That could be, pro- that could be prophetic, a prophecy, but not a word of knowledge. Okay, we, we don't see that use anywhere in Scripture. It's used once in 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul is talking about knowledge. But he's talking about a different type of knowledge and not a prophetic knowledge. He's talking about a knowledge which he commends, which is contrasted with the knowledge of the culture of the day, which prized rhetoric and philosophers and human wisdom and speech. Definition for you here is the spirit-powered ability to gain insight into and explain various aspects of the Christian faith and life, resulting in the instruction and edification of others. If you recall, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about having a knowledge, I have a knowledge, Paul's saying, that, hey, listen, you got meat sacrificed to idols? It's okay. You can eat the meat. It's not spiritually tainted. I had this knowledge, okay? For some, their conscience was weak, and they couldn't eat. They felt like if they ate the meat that was once sacrificed to idols, they would be somehow tainted. Paul said, I have the knowledge. That is not the case, but I will refrain from taking my brothers. There's a knowledge there, an understanding. I believe the word of knowledge is how our faith relates to life, Okay? And once again, I'm trying to condense it for you. Much more I could say there. Um, the reality is, we don't know much more about it, but we see in this one how the words wisdom and knowledge are used in Scripture in this book of 1 Corinthians. I am looking here. I lost my place. Unspectacular. Not spectacular. Where are you? Where'd you go? Where's this page? Page four. I am missing a page here. (laughs) I'm 
Sorry, guys. Somehow I got really messed up here. Thank you. Am I missing some pages here? Wow. Okay. Number one is teaching. Here we go. Lastly, the non-spectacular gifts. This is important, but like a better term, non-spectacular. Thank you, buddy. First Peter 4 talks about those who speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. There's those handy categories. Give us speaking gifts and serving gifts. What are those? They're gifts that we absolutely need in the church. And because they're last, they them less important. I think we have a better handle on what these gifts are. We can relate to them a little better. They're no less spiritual or no less supernatural because it's God who is spirit who empowers them to the service in his church and we need these gifts just as much. Also the gifts of speaking. Number one, teaching. Definition, the ability to explain scripture and apply it to people's lives. Alright, simple enough. Different teaching gifts, different capacities. Some, the point of elder and teaching. Some teaching in small groups, some Sunday school. Okay, so different capacities. But there is a teaching gift. Number two, exhortation. Oh, how do we how we mean exhortation? What's that? Speaking words into the power of the Spirit that a exhort others to a certain course of action or conduct consistent with scriptural truth. B encourage others in their Christian life, inspiring courage, perseverance, and hope. And C comfort and console others in the midst of grief, affliction, discouragement. <laughs> what a gift! <laughs> I want to see exhortation flowing in every home group. I mean, what, what else? that's what I want. I think we want a home group. Shall we meet? Courage, perseverance, hope, comfort, consolation. That's the ministry of the body. Oh, may the gift of exhortation be flowing. We need it. I need it. We all need it. Three, gifts of service. The spirit prompted sensitivity to needs, especially material needs within the community along with the accompanying actions of organizing and providing for these needs. Gifts of service. We too want to see this functioning in our church, in our home groups. So we get to know one another and we're serving one another, helping meet real, practical, yes, even material needs. Okay? Including benevolence. Four, helps. The spirit-empowered capacity to render practical help and assistance to those in need. Oh, that's needed. Eddie, I think you have the gift of helps, buddy. I think of Eddie Jordan, I think it helps right there. The capacity to render practical help. I know you exalt that, you love to do that, and you do it well. And that's really the marking of the gift. You do it well, but you have a desire to do it as well. You're looking for ways to serve in practical ways. Eddie, you do that so well. That's a spiritually empowered gift. Yes, you had to work hard in the areas that you've got you excel them with mechanically or the electrician, but God empowers that as a desire not to use that for the good of many. That's a gift of help in action. Gift of giving. The word comes from the verb meaning to share, to impart. It's a spirit-empowered capacity to utilize and give material resources to those in need with a purity of motive that views the giving as a simple sharing of what God has provided. 
I said, have you guys seen that in Wendy? I do. Just definitely. The gift of giving. Looking for ways to say, this is the Lord. I want to share. I want to give what I can. I, want, I see the Lord. I want to share it with you. To meet the common needs of those, starting with those in the church as God provides. I would need this gift as well, don't we? The church doesn't exist without it. <laughs> gift of giving. Number six, mercy. Literally, it says in the text, one who shows mercy. It's not just an emotional state. I'm a really sensitive, merciful person. Oh, it, it, there's emotion. But notice it's in verb form. One who shows mercy. Okay? So it's, it's not just an emotional state. It's an act that moves someone to show forth compassion. Okay? Because they're touched with compassion. We need mercy. The spirit-inspired compassion that benefits itself in concrete acts towards others with a view to providing comforts and relieving pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual. Number seven, leading. The gift mentioned as well. You can read that. These are all gifts. I listed 16 for you tonight. And that's an ambitious task, I know. Let me end with administrations. One last gift that is mentioned here. Administration is more than just doing little tasks. It's more than just being a detailed person and doing minutia. Literally, the term conveys the idea of guidance. If you translate it, it's a pilot. Another place in Revelation 18, 17, it's a shipmaster. It's someone who's able to take something and bring it to conclusion. They can administrate. They can govern well. They can take a project or a team and move them along to accomplish the task of Oh, that's a new gift in the church as well. Administrations. Administrations. All these gifts are for the building up of God's body, His church, and for His glory. Well, in conclusion, helpful quote from Jack Deere. Finally, as you are learning about spiritual gifts, be patient. Don't despise the days of small beginnings. Be thankful for everything you are learning and for every answer to prayer the Lord gives you. Don't despise small beginnings. Desire, seek, ask, pray, and step out. You may not know what your gifts are? That's okay. It's a tenor, tenor of your heart to serve. Those gifts will become known with increasing measure, and they'll be seen by others as well.